The sermon this morning is based on the epistle lesson for this fourth Sunday after Pentecost. It comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, and you can find it on page 826 of the Pew Bible. And please stand again as you are able for the reading of God's holy word. From Galatians 6, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letter, with, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a few times while I was growing up when I did not want my dad to come home. It was probably more than just a few times, but there are a few times that I remember not wanting him to come home. And it's not because he did anything wrong, but because I had done something wrong. And my dad did not know yet, but when he got home, he would find out. Either my mom would tell him, or he would just see the evidence of it, or, and this probably happened a couple of times, my sister might be gleefully waiting to tell him what I had done. Now, I wasn't really much of a troublemaker as a kid, but I also wasn't as good as everyone thought. I kind of just knew how to stay out of trouble. I knew how far I could go without incurring too much trouble, and I also knew how to frame my brother. I did that a few times. But there were still a handful of times when I did something wrong, and I could not hide it, and I could not talk my way out of it. I'll tell you about just one of those times. I was playing outside with a soccer ball, 
And I was trying to see how many times I could kick it over the house like a punter would kick a football. And so I'd start in the backyard and kick it over the house, and then I'd run around as fast as I could to the front of the house and kick it over the house again, and then I'd run to the backyard and kick it over the house, over and over again, back and forth. And I knew that I should not be doing this. I don't remember how I knew this. Maybe I knew what could happen, or maybe my dad had seen me doing this the day before and told me not to do it. I don't remember. Either way, the inevitable happened. The point of contact between my foot and the ball dropped, and the launch angle of the ball flattened out, and physics caused the ball to sail straight into the dining room window. Crash. Immediately, I felt shame. It wasn't really guilt. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is pain over what you have done. Shame is pain over how someone else sees you. And I wasn't really afraid of punishment either. It was really just shame. I did not want my dad to be disappointed with me. There's something about dads, and I don't know if this is true for girls. I think it is, but I know that this is true for boys. We don't want to disappoint our dads. I've even heard men who have never met their fathers say that they're still afraid of disappointing them. I can't totally explain this, but at least for the other guys here, I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. The last person in the world that a boy wants to disappoint is his own father. And you know, this isn't really fair for moms. It means that their discipline is not quite as effective as a father's discipline. And so my mom, she could threaten the same consequences and she could execute the same consequences as my dad, but I didn't care nearly as much. Discipline for my mom was kind of more like a transaction. It was just the price I had to pay for getting to do what I wanted. And so there were even times when she would threaten a consequence and I would weigh the cost and then say to myself, yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> but discipline from my dad, that made me feel shame. It's not like my dad ever tried to shame me. I just didn't want to disappoint him. And so I broke this window, and immediately I felt shame because I knew this was something my dad would deal with instead of my mom. And I should say, this is far from the worst thing that I ever did. In fact, as I look back on it, I don't think it was really a big deal at all. I think every boy, and parents might be mad at me, but I'm going to say it anyway, I think every boy should have the experience of breaking a window. <laughs> it's good for them. It has to be an accident, of course. If you do it on purpose, that's cheating. But every boy should make up enough outside games that he eventually breaks a window. It's just part of being a boy. And so this is far from the worst thing that I ever did. And that really is why I picked this story and not some other story. I don't really want to tell you the other stories. But this was still enough to make me feel shame. And so I didn't even go in the house. I didn't want to be there when my dad came home. Uh, and so if I remember correctly, I think this was the time that I hid in the garden. We had raspberry bushes and some other big shrubs back there, and they were big enough for a boy to hide in, or at least think that he's hiding. And so I literally hid in the garden. I'm not the first person to hide in a garden. It's actually a very human reaction when we feel shame. 
Adam and Eve were the first persons to do this. They didn't want God to find them. They did not want God to see them in their shame. And so they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God mercifully did not do what they wanted. He came and found them. He sought them out so that he could restore them to himself. He did give them consequences, if you remember. He removed them from the garden, which was actually for their own good. But more importantly, he promised to send a savior, and he set his salvation plan into motion. God came to restore them. He came to set things right. And, as you can probably guess, my dad also found me. There was no way I could hide from him. He was always going to find me. And you know what? When he did, I don't think he even punished me. I don't remember any punishment anyway. I do know, though, that he fixed the window. And that's what dads do. They fix things. And I don't just mean windows, but really the relationship. As long as that window was broken, I had shame. But when that, when that window was fixed, my shame was gone. And so my dad found me, and he fixed the whole thing. That's really what justice means. When we're caught in sin, we fear justice. And sometimes we define justice too narrowly as simply getting what we deserve. That's part of it. That's fairness. Fairness is when everyone gets what they deserve. Fairness is when everyone is rewarded according to their deeds or punished according to their sins. But fairness is not the same thing as justice. Sometimes justice and fairness overlap, but they're not the same thing. The word justice really means rightness or even righteousness. In Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and probably a whole bunch, whole bunch of other languages too, justice and rightness are really the same word. They don't have two different words for it like we do. Justice means doing the right thing or even making things right. That's enacting justice. Sometimes we do the right thing by giving fair rewards and fair punishments. This is the way that government functions. A just government gives fair rewards and fair consequences. But fairness is only one of the ways justice can be manifested. Justice can also be manifested by mercy and forgiveness. In this kind of justice, someone like a father or God himself makes things right. This is really merciful, but you know that it's not really fair. In order to manifest justice in our house, that is, in order to make things right, that window needed to get fixed. Now, the fair thing would have been for my dad to say, you broke it, you fix it. That would be fair, but it could never make things right because I didn't know how to fix the window. And if I had tried, I certainly would have failed and I probably would have hurt myself. The only way to make things right, the only way to make our house just again, was for him to take responsibility for it. And so he did. And that is the gracious manifestation of justice. Perhaps you can see how this relates to the Christian faith. 
Our first parents corrupted this world by sinning against God's command. It broke everything. It brought pain, violence, sin, and death into the world. Now, the fair thing would have been for God to say, you broke it, you fix it, and if you can't, you have to pay the price. But they, of course, could not do that. They didn't have the power, and they didn't have the power to fix it, nor did they have the power to pay for it. They had the power to destroy but they did not have the power to restore. And so if God had chosen to be fair, justice would have never been possible. In order for God to have justice, he has to fix it himself. He has to make things right. He's the only one that can. And that's what he did by sending his own son in human flesh. Jesus suffered the curse of sin and death for us, We could not bear the curse and live because we have continued in that same rebellion as our first parents. But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was pure. His life was pure enough and his life was valuable enough to pay the redemption price for us. And he was powerful enough that the grave could not hold him in death. And so he bore the curse for our sake so that we would be restored as God's children. This is God's justice. God did everything necessary to fix what we have broken. He restored our relationship to him. And so we have no reason to feel any shame. God sees you through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he sees when he looks at you. Remember, shame is pain over the way someone else sees you. But God sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. And so you have no reason to feel any shame. But we still do feel shame because we still see the things we have done. We still see the way that we are in our sinful flesh. Now this, I imagine, must be the most frustrating thing for God. He has removed our sin. He has removed the cause of our shame. But we still live in this shame, and it makes us hide from God. We're hiding from the one who removed our shame. Now, I don't know if God really experiences frustration. We know that God does have emotions, but they're somewhat different than ours. His greatest emotion is compassion. That's the pity or the mercy that he feels for us. The Bible also talks about his joy, his anger, even his jealousy. Human beings are created in the image of God. Part of that image of God is that we experience emotions, as God does. But we experience these emotions in a sinful or a selfish way. God experiences them in a pure, selfless, and loving way. He feels anger or jealousy, not for his own sake, but for ours, when those that he loves are consumed by evil. And so when we talk about God being an emotional being, we should remember that his emotions are different than ours. They're pure and they're powerful. For us, frustration is a feeling of weakness. We get frustrated when things don't work the way that we want them to and we're powerless to fix it. That, for us, is frustration. God, of course, is not powerless like we are. But we can certainly say that he feels sorrow when things are not right. 
and especially its sorrow over the fact that those he loves have hidden their eyes from him so they do not see his love. It must be painful for him because he has removed our shame and he has told us that he has removed our shame and he has promised to forgive us when we confess our sin. But we refuse to see it. We refuse to hear it. Our shame leads us to hide from God and for no good reason. He can see us the whole time, but we hide from him and we turn our faces away from him. We're like little toddlers who think that their parents can't see them when they cover their eyes. But, but that only causes us to not see God. He can see right through the appearances that we put up. He can see the depravity inside of us. But he chooses to see you through the righteousness of Jesus. And he gives this righteousness to you as a pure gift. The frustrating thing is that we don't feel that until we get past our feelings of shame. And this is why Paul says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the point of all this. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's how God deals with us, and it's how he desires us to deal with one another. As Christians, we do not ignore sin. In the last chapter, uh, chapter 5 of Galatians, just, just a few verses before this, Paul talks about many sins, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The rest of the Bible has even more to say about sin. And so we do not ignore sin. Ignoring sin leaves it unresolved. Instead, we restore those who are caught in sin. We remove shame by forgiving sins. Now, this is different, very different, than how the world deals with shame. And by the world, I really mean the collective sinful natures of all of us in the world. That's what makes up the world. The world deals with shame in one of two ways, condemnation and denial. The world condemns sin in other people. We do that so that we can feel better about ourselves. This is one of the ways that we try to resolve our own shame. We amplify other people's shame in order, to, in order to make ours seem smaller in comparison. We say, at least I'm not as bad as that other guy. The other thing the world does is deny sin. The world tries to solve the shame problem by pretending that the sin that caused the shame isn't really a sin. And this is our failed attempt to remove the cause of shame. We redefine sin as a virtue, and then we take pride in it instead. But as Christians, we do not ignore sin. We do not redefine sin, and we do not even condemn sinners. Only God can condemn we forgive because this is ultimately what God has done with all sin. He condemned it in the flesh of Jesus so that he can forgive us. When someone comes to restore us, it's going to feel like condemnation at first. The presence 
of another person coming to restore us reminds us of the reason that they have come. It reminds us of our sin and our shame. And as soon as they acknowledge that we have sinned, we feel condemned and we feel shame. But anyone who truly comes in the name of Jesus does not come to condemn, they come to restore. And this is what God does with us. He sends people, other people, to proclaim this to us. He did not leave us alone in our shame. He does not allow us to hide from him. If he did, we would die in our shame. But he came to find us and restore us. Jesus took our shame upon himself. He wore that shame, literally. You could see it looking at him. Others looked at him as a criminal worthy of death. That's what he looked at. That's what he looked like, and that's how they treated him. And he died that way. And that was your shame. That was your shame. It was placed on Jesus. He suffered, died, and rose again to fix what we have broken. This is how God enacted justice, and this is how you are restored. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.